Welcome to Internet Misfits, a podcast that explores new, exciting futures and the people building them. We focus on creators and entrepreneurs who see the world differently. I'm Joe Cohen, your host and the founder and CEO of Universe, an app that lets anyone build an amazing website and online store with just their phone. In this podcast, I try to get at the essence of our guests' unique ways of seeing the world and understand really what makes them tick. My hope is that you leave with new learnings, tools, and inspiration to build out your own dreams. Let's dive in. Today we have my good friend Chantel Martin uh, on the show. I'm so excited to have you here, Chantel. Thanks for coming. Lovely to see you. I think this is the latest I've ever spoke to anyone on that's recorded. So hopefully I'm, I'm going to do okay. Well, it's an experiment. Yeah, it's definitely the latest issue of the podcast so far. We've done the other few in the morning. But I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be cool. We've had a lot of inspiration this evening. It's been, I feel like the stage has been set. The stage has definitely been set. Chantal and I were just at the Brooklyn Museum. We went to a performance by uh, a gentleman named Lonnie Holly. Lonnie Holly. Yeah. What is this story? So, and don't quote me on this because I I never really remember facts completely right, but I believe he's born in 1950s, possibly from the South, like Alabama area. Like Mm. I say, don't completely quote me on this, but he was a sculptor or is a sculptor and artist that then transitioned into music. And his music is almost like a reflection of his art. Mm. And so it's improvised. And now he plays with a band or has been playing with a band for many years. And it's so refreshing, his music. Mm. It's so fresh mm. and raw and creative and hypnotizing. And for me, the show that we just saw was so inspiring. Yeah. What inspired you about it? It really inspires me to see someone on stage in their element get lost. Right. Because he's getting lost in the words, in the music, and you're seeing someone in their most powerful Mm. position. Mm. And you can see how that power translates into someone's like happy place. And and I was inspired by saying or thinking at that time watching him like, Mm. oh, that's my happy place. Like, Mm. I want to be that guy. Mm. I want to be on stage. I want to be lost in the moment, Mm. lost in the music, lost in the own sound of your voice vibrating. That's pure joy. For those who are listening who don't know, Chantal is an acclaimed visual artist, but really, you know, I'd say artist philosopher at heart, as we were talking earlier, and the and the expression of that takes many different forms. So I think she's probably most known for her stream of consciousness style drawings and paintings, but has been doing a lot of experimentation and in her career has always been doing a lot of experimentation. And now, you know, was telling me that you're really interested in music and sound. And I'd love if you can talk a little bit about how this became an interest and something that you're really passionate about. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So I've always been experimenting. I've Mm. always been exploring. I've always enjoyed this idea of getting lost. And when I look back, music has always been a part of my work. It's only when you're a little bit older in life, then you have Mm. that power of reflection to look back. And then you start to put the puzzle pieces together and see that there's things that are present in your life now that you think are new, Mm. but they've always been there. And so I think at the core of me and at my core of my practice, there's always been this past life of drawing to music or with mm. music. You know, my past life as a VJ, a mm. visual jockey in Japan. 
doing live drawn digital visuals to DJs, to right. dancers, to musicians. In a way, I was also a musician, but my tool or my instrument was a pen. And mm. it was that pen dancing on a canvas or on a Wacom mm. tablet. And, you know, in those situations, I'm typically at the back of the room. I'm kind of hidden. Right. Also, when I think back, and I'm going to jump around yeah. as I'm thinking about this, when I look back at sketchbooks from 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, they are full with poetry. Mm. They're full with words. They're full with words that rhyme, words mm. that repeat. And that's something that I do often now, which I didn't realize I did it so long ago mm. until I started to look through older sketchbooks. And I saw things, oh, I did that last week and it felt new, but here's it in black and white in a mm. sketchbook from 20 years ago, the same kind of thought or idea. Mm. And almost in a way, as an artist, there is a core of us that mm. if you don't explore it or get it out or fully experiment with it, in a way it kind of haunts you or it's like a right. ghost. It's always there. And, you know, your question about when did the music start, I think it's always been there for as long as I've been mm. drawing. And I've always enjoyed playing on a keyboard and using my voice. And I found a video interview from 11 years ago mm. that a friend did when I first came to New York. And at the end of the video, 11 years ago, my friend asks, so what do you want to do next? Like, where, where, where do you want to go? What are your goals? And I said, my goals are to play music, mm. to use my voice. Mm. to experiment more. Those are my goals now. <laughs> it's so bizarre. Mm. And, the, you know, we have the sirens of Brooklyn, so that yeah. real experience in the background. But it's so bizarre to see your younger self say something that you don't really remember. I have no memory of right. this. Say something which is your goal now. And so I have two feelings about that. A, like, did I just not achieve my goal? Mm. Because it's still my goal now or B is this something that I need to work through and mm. I believe that there is this core of me that is innately this practice this medium mm. it's always been there I've always been exploring it now I'm just really acknowledging it and trying to do something with it mm. and that makes sense because if I think about your drawings the way that I've seen you draw is there's almost like a music to it. Mm -hmm. You're kind of like performing as you draw and the, and the resulting artwork is almost like a recording of the performance in a sense, which is like music, right? Music is similar. You're especially improv. And I know the kind of stuff that, that you do, it's very exploratory in its nature. So to me, like it, it all tracks. Like it's not surprising at all to me. So the way I approach a keyboard is the same way I approach a drawing. Mm. A keyboard is full of black and white keys, and the way that I draw is predominantly black and white. And when I approach those keys, I approach them confidently, mm. without hesitation, without being insecure, mm. with repetition. Mm. And that's what I do with a pen. I pick up a pen. And I approach the surface, the paper, the canvas confidently. And when I start drawing, I draw without hesitation mm. and with repetition, mm. recurring words, lines and characters. And so approaching a keyboard and using my words and my fingers to kind of press on these keys, I'm making a drawing. Mm. It's just a different medium. And like you say, when I'm drawing, 
I'm making music. Mm. It's just a different medium. Mm. And so it's really interesting to see that in real life. <laughs> the siren over here is really uh, something I wonder. <laughs> it's just the soundtrack for the rest but, of the um, podcast. So that's really interesting. How did you come to find the pen as that first instrument for expressing that, that stream of consciousness? So for me, the pen is the most accessible tool on the planet mm. in a way. We're all exposed to a pen or a pencil at a young age. And so I've always gravitated towards being creative as a person and, and being curious mm. and being open and being playful. And the tools that were around me weren't much, but mm. what was there is a pen or mm. a pencil. And so these were pens and tools that I could pick up and really explore my imagination. Mm. So when I was younger, I pick up a pen and I draw characters or places or spaces and I'd use it as a tool just to imagine. And so I think for me, it's more so a tool or a medium that just didn't go away. You know, mm. I think we all pick up pens and pencils right. as children, but often we put them down mm. and move on to other things. And I, I never moved on. Mm. I like that framing of the pen is like the most pedestrian tool to express that, that inner soul or voice. And there are other tools and you've, you've sort of, you have that range. Cause I know that you've done a lot of experimentation with technology mm. and VR and things like this, but it's coming from that same source. It's just that curiosity. I was that kid that my Nintendo NES, mm. Saturday morning, I'll get a screwdriver and I would take it all apart look at all the pieces and put them, put it all back together mm. and see if it worked and it would. And so there's just this curiosity of wanting to see what's under the hood or mm. what's the process of something is or how mm. something works. And I think if my gift was, you know, being a marine biology biologist, maybe I would have got there, but it would have taken a lot longer. But the idea mm. that pens and screwdrivers and these things were around were things that I could experiment with or collaborate with. Mm. And, Technology is, is always been in my life as well. I've always beta tested or alpha tested, mm. Wacom tablets, drawing software. I love being confronted with stuff that I don't understand or that's yeah. new because I get to just dive in and imagine almost like I did with a kid with a pen, like what I can do with it or where mm. it can go. So you talked about approaching the canvas with confidence and with this kind of free flowingness. Where does that come from? Like, did you always have that? I have to ask young Chantel. I don't know. I imagine I always had that because otherwise, where does it come from? I think as a kid, I was, in a way, had, had to be confident, you know, from where I'm from mm. and then looking like how I look, I had to be confident as a kid because I grew up in a very white, racist, working class kind of environment. And then I was like this little brown kid with an afro. Mm. So as soon as I would walk out of my house, sometimes I get beaten up, sometimes I get shouted at, mm. sometimes, you know, something is going to happen on the bus or on the way to school because I look different from everyone else around mm. me. And as a young kid, that in a way instilled into me this confidence or this huh. individuality because I didn't fit in. I didn't look like anyone. Yeah. I couldn't fit in. What's the point in trying? Mm. So in a way I leaned into myself mm. and leaning into myself in that sense gave me the confidence to walk down the street and just be like, yeah, I am who I am. And how much of it was or is genuine confidence in the sense that you feel like you know versus 
you know that you need to approach it as if you know, then you will know kind of thing? It's a good question. I think I've always just known. And mm. I, I think there is this sense of ground groundedness yeah. or ground I don't know what the word is but I've always felt very grounded in who I am mm. I'm not insecure in who I am I'm not trying to be anyone else mm. I can walk into a room full of anyone and I know who I am I'm yeah. not trying to prove anything I'm not trying to sell anything I'm not trying to be anyone else other than myself mm. and I think I've always had that as a quality or as a trait since mm. I was young a few months ago, you invited me to, to a performance that you were doing in, in Soho. It was a, a musical performance and you were doing sort of spoken word poetry, singing a little bit. And I was so impressed by like, yeah, exactly what you just said, which is that you approached the mic with just confidence and you were like freestyling and going for it. And you asked people in the audience to like write a word down and show you it. And then you were riffing off of those words. And it was like, you were in flow state and like there was it felt very little self-consciousness, which was really cool and inspiring just to witness, to see someone so free. But it also, I think you made a comment at the time about being nervous, which was interesting to me. Yeah. Also, maybe one of the reasons why music is coming into my life as well and coming into my life quite often now is that I'm very confident and I, I in a way, I own a pen and a marker. You mm. know, I pick up a black marker, I own it. Right. I know where it's going. I know how to control it. Mm. It doesn't challenge me. Right. It doesn't make me feel vulnerable. It doesn't mm. scare me. Standing in front of an audience with a microphone and a keyboard, not knowing what I'm going to do or what I'm going to say, that is a little bit scary for me. There's some pressure there. And as creatives, we need to be intimidated. Mm. We need to be scared. We need to be vulnerable. We need to not be comfortable because right. as soon as we're comfortable creatively, we flatline. So with the music, it does make me nervous. And sometimes I feel like I'm totally red and like blushing up there, but I push through it because that's the creativeness mm. in me. And I push through it because I know I will grow from it. Mm. And I push through it because I know I'll get better. Mm. And so there's something really magical about doing something that you know is your calling, mm. you know is a medium that is natural to you, but knowing that you have to mold it and have to groom it and have to practice it and have to go through that process of getting it to a place where it's better. Mm. I think my performances are good, but they're not great. And it's so magical to do it and iterate and iterate and notice little things about yourself that you can improve next time, places you need to look, the ways that you stand, the way that you use your voice, the way you interact with the audience, the way I hand out the cards, the way maybe I take a word from someone in the audience, the way that I connect the audience. These are all like little details that every time I either become more aware of them or I'm able to improve them. And so I am definitely a little bit nervous up there and mm. a little bit scared and a little bit vulnerable, but that's the point. Mm. The point is I don't have that feeling anymore when I'm drawing, but as creatives, we need to experience that regularly mm. to push ourselves. It is cool to see you put yourself on the line, especially as someone who's had success in one area, you're putting yourself out there before you're satisfied with the result, so to speak, or you feel like, you know, it could be even better. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's cool. That's, you know, in, 
in in my business we call that sort of iterating and yeah. uh, you know shipping quickly and 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 learning from what you do but that feels very rare in the arts well i think a lot of my work is process based mm. i am not a performer but by default i'm a f- performer because mm. even a lot of my drawing i do it live in front of an audience right. be it at a museum show be it an event be it something else i like creating the work with an audience because and I talk about this a lot, for many reasons, it keeps me as honest as I'll ever be. Because mm. when you're drawing in front of an audience, you don't have time to be anyone else but yourself. Right. And more importantly, you get to have the audience be a part of that process. Mm. And what's the point of making art if it isn't to share that process and, and have that connection and that experience with people? Mm. And so through the music you get to see me through the process of iterating Mm. and you get to see as someone like yourself who came a few months ago, maybe next year or two years time, you get to come to another show and hopefully more in between then. But you say, oh, I've seen this progress. Mm. I've seen the evolution of this. I've seen the process of this. Mm. I've seen the creation of this. I've seen the making of this. Mm. And therefore you're more invested or a part of the art than you would be Mm. if I went and hid away in the Catskills for a few months or something like that and then came back and be like, I have a show. And so I think it's really important to workshop or to expose the process. And a lot of artists in a way shy away from that. I think they believe that if you expose the process, you lose the magic. Mm. And that's why a lot of artists will make their work or their assistants will make their work and then it shows up in a museum or a gallery and there's, it's in a frame and there's a distance. Yeah, There's a loss of connection. But if that work is created with an audience and in real time, it's all connection. It's all mm. process. It's all experience. And for me, as a living artist that is making my work now, it's so important for me to be transparent in the way that I'm making work and mm. to share that as the work itself. Mm. Well, I love that. I mean, I think for one, it's very inspiring because as a, an audience member or as a friend, just tracking your growth on it, you know, it's very encouraging for me to go try things that I'm not as good at, but want to try and to put yourself on the line. And I think there's something about your work and your story in general that is about that idea uh, of fostering that inner creativity, expressing your core self, and I think that's very different than than other artists. I think often other artists are telling you about them and you in many ways are telling us about us or helping us think about us. Talk about that a little bit. Life is like a mirror. To mm. find out fragments or pieces of yourself, sometimes you have to put the mirror outwards and see what mm. reflects back. And for me, the mirror has represented questions. Mm. And... As someone that has been able to use my art as a means to travel, to go to art school, to go to Japan, to go to all these fancy places, to Mm. have these experiences, it's always amazed me that as humans, we still struggle to describe who we are. Mm. And I have this myself. You know, we can talk about where we're from. We can talk about what we do. We can talk about the roles that we play in life. We can talk about the things we want to do. We can ask children, what do you want to be when you're older? But how do we articulate who we are at the core as humans? And it's bizarre to me and dumbfounding that People have been around for a really, 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 really long time. 
yet we can't describe, nor do we have the vocabulary to describe who we are as people. Mm. And what if we ask children, who are you versus what do you want to be when you grow Mm. up? Maybe the children would be able to describe or articulate some other words other Mm. than astronaut or doctor. Mm. They might be able to describe who they are at the core before we take them off of that path and and Mm. start to tell us where they're from or what they do or what they want to be. And I think fundamentally, when we start to describe who we are at the core or we start to find the vocabulary to describe that, everything else will come into perspective Mm. and that will put our priorities in order. Mm. When we don't know who we are or we can't articulate who we are at the core as humans, we are always on a different path. Mm. But I think once we start to find those words, like I say, the priorities that we have in life as individuals or communities or as humanity will start to take shape. Mm. And so in a way... For my work, I feel like my work are like seeds. Mm. And it was interesting to hear Lonnie Holly also use seeds tonight Mm. and and in his performance because I believe that my messaging and my work are like seeds and they Mm. get planted in people to ask these questions of why are you here or who are you or Mm. what do you want to do today or what are you doing with your life? Mm. And those seeds are planted by you and they're grown by you but you have to have the intention and the good intention for that to happen. Mm. And so the work I'm creating is a message. It is a window. It is reflections. And through those reflections, it's also a gift. Mm. I'm very open with my work. Mm. I am very caring and sharing with my work. I'm very giving with my work. And I think that is essentially because I see the value in that. You know, I see the value in giving pens to people and encouraging them to draw. I see the value in asking people, who are you? Or giving them these stickers that they can put up somewhere and then reflect on that. I see the value in encouraging people to also create and share and make and discover themselves. So in a way, that is the art. The art is planting Mm. seeds in other people to give them that permission to create for themselves in many ways. I think that that you are following a lineage of creators like Walt Disney and Warhol and, you know, in some ways like Steve Jobs really, that had this idea, it was a message about human creativity and it wasn't just about the finished widget because we want to participate in in the art. We want to leave it with some insight about how we can build our lives. How do you answer that question today? Who are you? I like to answer that question in a more practical way. Mm. So that question of who are you, it's age old, Mm. it's existential, it's big and scary. Who are you? Yes. But if you take it and simplify it and you look at the first three letters, you have W-A-Y, way. And so I like to take that scary question and ask another question, which is how am I or you finding your way in life? Mm. And I'm finding my way in life through this language of words and lines and drawing Mm. and performance and connecting and expecting Mm. and experiencing. And through all of that, it helps me to find my way to this bigger answer of who are you? So I, for myself now, in the sense that you have to go through, or you don't have to, but a more practical means and way is saying, well, how are you finding your way in life? How are you finding your way in life? 
What's your path in life? Because that path will ultimately take you to the answer of who you are. Mm. What I hear in that is that who you are is always changing. Mm-hmm. There is no fixed sense. You're on a journey and you're, you're finding your way is another way of saying that. But I think that's also the mystery of the question. Yeah. Because questions often imply that there's an answer. But really, there isn't an answer to that question. I mean, well, there might be an answer, but it's an answer that's probably impossible to articulate. And it's also circular, you know. So if you've ever bumped into me or met me, I've probably given you a sticker. The chances are quite strong. And there's some different permutations. I have some different variations. And one says, who are you? That big, scary question. And you might get a sticker that says, you are you. And so you are you in a way is that destination. Mm. It is that goal. And the first three letters of you are you are W-A-Y, yay. Mm. So in a way, the philosophy or the understanding or the path is to try and find your way to yay. Mm. Yay is that place of understanding or celebration or self-knowing. But when you know yourself, you know that you know nothing. Mm. And you have to start that cycle and that journey and get on that path again. And Mm. so you have to ask that original question in a new way because you can't ask the same question of yourself. You have to ask it in a new way. And that's where that question of are you you came from. Are you you is an evolution. It's a circle. It's a cycle Mm. of coming from who are you to you are you to are you you. Mm. I think that we're living in a moment where it's possible for people to be themselves in a way that was much harder 100 years ago or 200 years ago, in part because of technology, Mm -hmm. right? Technology allows us to be a musician and be a business person and make clothing. And it's not just technology, it's the knowledge that's out there, it's the people. And it's also by necessity, right? Like it's no longer, you you cannot build a life by just being one thing in many ways because tools and machines have gotten sophisticated enough to replace humans in those areas. So I think uh, one of the reasons I'm optimistic is that I think we are entering again the sense of the human as a multidisciplinary polymath, right? Mm-hmm. Someone who is not defined by like their job title or their, yeah. they're not a carpenter or a designer, they're a human. They're a specific human and they express themselves in these ways. And even though those words have been around for a long time, but in practice, that practice hasn't been around for a mm. long time, you know, with in regards to like a popular consensus. Because right. I remember even moving to New York in 2008, 2009, people would be like, well, Chantal, you can't do fine art and commercial work and this and then that right. and then this because it will devalue your work. Right. And I would say, well, why are you putting boxes around yes. these different industries or mediums? Aren't I allowed as an artist just to do things that I feel like challenge me? Mm and things that I'm excited about, regardless of the medium or the industry. Mm. And people would say no. And so I made it a point to do things that challenged me, do things that I was excited about. And they could have been in academia, they could have been commercial projects, they could have been fine art projects, because I knew that the thread that I carried through all of them was me. Mm. And so... I could bring myself and show up to these different spaces, you know, maybe one week do a museum show and then the next week release a pair of sunglasses or something mm. like that. And to an outsider that's coming from this very specific narrow path, that might seem like a, a bit odd. But for me, it just seemed normal because I was excited about sunglasses and I was excited to have a museum show. So why not? And I think to what you're saying as well, 
that has definitely become less taboo. Mm. And now it's kind of sometimes weird if you don't do more than right. one thing. Oh, so you're a sculpture, but what else mm. do you do? And so now it's almost expected of you mm. to be interested or doing something else. Mm. And it's amazing now that you can go online and literally learn anything. Yeah. You know, you want to play harmonica, you want to learn how to animate, you want to learn how to build a synthesizer or you want to learn how to speak another language you can literally go online and there's teachers and there's resources available to you which when I was growing up definitely wasn't the case so I wonder what it would be like if I was you know 20 10 years ago Mm. able to have all the resources that we do now I probably end up in the same place but it is just amazing the wealth that we have there and the choice that people have Totally. For someone like you, who's really driven by curiosity, the moment we're living in is like so open-ended, right? It's everything's a Google search Mm -hmm. away and becomes available. And that's to me the through line when you say, why does it all cohere? Why does Chantel's spoken word poetry and her visual art and her talks that she gives, why are they all the same? Or why do they come from the same place? It's because it's you and you're just following the curiosity and where it goes. And it's like you following the pen on the canvas when Chantel draws, she's, it almost is like you're following the pen, mm-hmm. like it has a mind of its own. It's interesting because we think that artists have the biggest box of freedom of creation, but my experience is that we actually really limit our, our mm. artists. Yeah, and I I've agree. seen this by experience because, for example, I'm speaking at Adobe Max. You know, yeah. there's 15,000 people in the audience and there's 20,000 people live streaming in. And I'm talking about really meaningful things. And then I get off stage and someone will say, oh, you're a really good speaker for an artist. Right. Instead of really listening to what I'm right. saying yeah. and commenting on my content, yeah. they can't get over the fact that I'm a good speaker, mm. but also an artist. Right. Or if I choreograph a ballet, you know, I choreographed a ballet for the Boston Ballet this year and had a world premiere mm. at the Boston Opera House. And instead of people saying, oh my God, I saw your ballet. It was incredible. Mm. It was amazing. You know, what an amazing opportunity or, or feat. Mm. They say, oh, so, you're, so you must be a dancer. Mm. Like literally that is the first thing that everyone says. Mm. Oh, you must be a dancer. No. Mm. Oh, mm. so you must have choreographed before. No, I'm an artist. Yeah. And so there is in it is so interesting how we on one hand think that artists are able to do everything, but on the other hand when they do something that we believe is outside of their scope, we question it and we have to try and understand it. And in a way that's why I like to say that I am an artist and a philosopher because I'm someone that thinks and questions mm. things. And the result of that thinking and that questioning is often in the result or the form of art. Mm. It's a product or a byproduct of the thinking and questioning. It's not the main thing that I do. Mm. And so I like challenge everyone to start to break down those boxes and those walls that we've built up around people's titles and jobs and and, uh, the assumptions that we make that people can do or can't do or should be able to do or shouldn't be able to Mm. do based on where they're coming from. Yeah. It resonates a lot. I mean, I think to your point, we think the conception of the artist is is this free individual, but I agree actually in some ways the artist is the most constrained Mm -hmm. and that is by medium because we, you know, we pigeonhole an artist as a painter or a sculptor, but also 
we don't expect them to do things outside of art in the classic sense. We don't expect them to be good at business, for example. And uh, when I think about you know myself, and if someone says, "Okay, you know, who are you?" If I'm not giving the enlightened answer, the answer is I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. And people have conceptions of what an entrepreneur is, and it's a business person. And so, you know, that's often not thought of as someone who's creative or who, yeah, can traverse different areas and think in different ways. And I think that to me, the the bright side of all of this is that because the conventional wisdom is different, that means that the other side is so open yeah. for opportunity, right? It's like, because the connections that you're making across these fields are are your own and they're novel and they're unique. And so it's just an open space. Yeah. And in many ways you are an artist, you mm. know, I've seen you be so creative in so many ways and build companies and transition from companies and, you know, build prototypes and, you know, imagine and think big. Mm. And it's just that your medium or your canvases are different. You know? Totally. Yeah. I mean, that's how I think about it personally. You know, I think you get permission to do different things by wearing a certain role, right? So as an artist, if you identify as an artist in the, in the public, you get permission to do things. Yeah. You can go and be like a little crazy, quote unquote, or like you can wear certain things or you can spend your time in certain ways. And that could be liberating if those are the kinds of things you, you want to get. If you're going from the business side of the, you know, you can now talk to investors and you can interact with markets. And I think the key is not being beholden to those original yeah. things that you get. Do you think, what role or title do you think gives you the most freedom? I, I've chosen to go the route of the entrepreneur because I think that everything's available, but it does, you know, some things aren't. Like I don't, you know, it'd be very hard for me to, uh, I don't know. I, I think, you know, I think earlier in my career, I found it harder to be as creative as it really was mm. because the expectations for someone who is a CEO were different. And, you know, I think as I've come to know myself and as I've come to find my voice, I'm much more comfortable taking that seat. Yeah. But yeah, I like to say that I want to be the most business savvy person in a room of creative people. And I want to be the most creative person in a room of business people. And I want to be the most technical in a room of people who are not technical. And, but that also means that I'm the least, you know, maybe business oriented in a room or rather I am very interested in crossing boundaries and having one fit in each of these areas. And so you want to be lingual enough to be able to be in a room uh, with people who are expert at different things. Yeah. I, I like that. And and also it's it's interesting because I often think about, you know, what it is to be an entrepreneur yeah. in a way and what permission that gives you yeah. and also what models you have. Mm. So if you want to be an entrepreneur and you want to build a business and you want to do a startup, there's so many models out there or roadmaps that yes. you can follow. If you want to be an artist... Mm there aren't really as many roadmaps Mm. or there aren't really as many structures. Mm. So for example, you're doing a startup. Okay. You've got to raise some capital. You need some board of advisors. Mm. You need a lawyer. You need an office. You Mm. need a five-year plan. There it is in black and white, kind of what you need to do. Mm. If you're an artist, it's almost just good luck. Yeah. And we don't put that same infrastructure around an artist. And, and in a way, we don't have that same model. And so I often think about how can I adopt that business understanding mm. to what I do? You know, I'm 
pretty much an individual artist. Mm. But what if I had a board of advisors? Or what if I had people invested in me? Or what if I had a five-year plan? Totally. Or what if I saw myself more like a startup and I have these assets and commodities, which is my art, which is this philosophy, and that's the foundation. So then let's build upon that and on top of that. And I think that's something I would love to do and have people who are invested in me who can help me think bigger than I can think by mm. myself because that's essentially what a board is doing. Yes. But we don't put those same infrastructures around mm. artists. And then when artists do succeed or have some success, we call them sellouts. Right. Because now they're able to support themselves yeah. and now they're not struggling anymore and now they can't be exploited anymore. Right, exactly. And, and now they shouldn't be artists anymore. Yeah. And so we're almost set up to fail. Yeah. And in a way, it's it's such the opposite to an entrepreneur. Like mm. they're all set up and encouraged to succeed. Mm. Where artists, it's the opposite. Totally, I love this. And uh, you know, one of the themes that I, I think a lot about that we're exploring on the show is this intersection of creativity and, and commerce. Right, that people often think about these things as at odds. And I think they're definitely not at odds. And in fact, they really benefit from each other. If you're successful commercially, it gives you the freedom and space mm -hmm. to be more ambitious creatively. And if you're doing really creative, great work, it supports a great business model. Like those things go hand in hand. But I think the powers that be are really incentivized to preserve the status quo. Yeah. So if you think about the classic art world, you've got the artists and then you've got the capital, which are you know rich uh, collectors. And as soon as an artist talks about money, they're considered unpure, not sophisticated artists. Yeah. You know, it's like the biggest taboo in art is saying that you want to make money. Yeah. Right. And that's crazy. And because it's, it's interesting because I say to a lot of artists, like, what happens to your work when it goes to the gallery? And they're like, it gets sold. I'm like, it gets sold for what? Money. Right. Okay. So why are you not allowed to talk about that part of your business? Yeah. That is fundamentally a huge role and part of your totally. business. And it is this it's by design, you yeah. know, it's by design. If we have our, and I've had this argument with so many curators and people mm. that are like, no, the artists shouldn't talk about money and shouldn't talk about finances and shouldn't talk about taxes. And they, they, we need to keep them creative and pure and outside of that. And I said, yeah. And you leave them open for exploitation. Yeah. And that is by design. They don't need to be accountants. They don't need to know the ins and outs of everything, but they should, like in any business, know the different roles or have a grasp of the different areas of their business. And if a huge role of that is the fact that it gets sold for money in its commerce, mm. essentially, you know, art galleries, it's retail. It's a retail totally. business. Totally. But we've just built this facade around yeah. it so that the gatekeepers are okay taking 50%. Right. And a lot of people don't even know that galleries take 50% or more. Right from the artists and and you know their sense is well it's justified we have rent and we have this to pay and i'm like yeah so does the artist <laughs> you know they have to pay 50 percent to you and then they get taxed 50 percent, and then they're paying for their overhead for their staff for their materials for their time what else is left and and so it is an archaic model where yeah. we talk about how everyone loves the artist and supports the artist but yet we don't have an infrastructure or or the financials that really show and support that yeah it, like i said it, i think it's taboo to talk about money as an artist but in some ways the art world quote unquote is i would say like the most like hyper-capitalist market that yeah, there is. Yeah, unregulated, hyper-capitalist. It's unregulated, yeah. Like there, there are no rules. There are very few customers. It's super opaque. The supply chain has no rights, you know, like mm. it's... 
And it makes sense that the powers that be would want to preserve that. But I think it's a mind virus, actually. I think that like, yeah, like we need to break down this idea that to be an incredible groundbreaking artist, you can't be commercial. So I think to that point, like one thing I've, I've always admired about you is that you've blurred those lines. You've always thought about yourself as a business in that sense. You've not compromised the work, you've pushed it forward, but you're also not represented by a gallery, even though you've been in some of the top museums in the world and done all these incredible institutional shows. So Talk to me a little bit about like, yeah, why aren't you associated with a gallery and how do you think about this? Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like I'm not opposed to it. I'm actually open to mm. it. But at this point, I would need to work with a gallery that is a good fit for me, mm. that can elevate me, that can edit me, that can take my work to kind of a different level. Yeah. And also, I think a lot of what galleries promise, I'm already doing. Mm. So sometimes it's nice to have a show at a gallery here and there because it's that scale is sometimes nice and intimate and Mm. you get to expose your work to a different demographic but overall like what's the point if we can't really grow and elevate Mm. and so I think for me I have always had this like defiant kind of personality in a sense so I am making work that I want it to be accessible and I don't really want to play to rules that I don't agree with. And I'm not going to suck up to anyone that, you know, just to do something. And so even if I don't have galleries, that doesn't mean I'm not going to make art. Mm. It's quite the opposite, you know, because the world is a gallery. The world mm. is a is your opportunity. And so I found other ways of of putting work out there. And even just, you know, I've had multiple solo museum shows and you get to show your work to the public, you get to do performances there, you get to sometimes do installations there. Uh, And a way that I found nice to get my work out there in the public is by taking over the museum shop. You know, so I did this with the Whitney Museum. I took over their shop. I did it with the Denver Art Museum. Mm -hmm. I did it with the New Britain Museum of American Art, where in a way I see like the shop as the gallery, the mini mm-hmm. gallery. Uh, you come and you buy a postcard or a key ring or, a, or an art piece or a poster and you take that home and then you display it at home. And so in the way hmm. there is seeing retail mm-hmm. and design as a way of bringing galleries into people's homes. Yeah, that's cool. And so as someone that didn't grow up with art and galleries and, and museums, I grew up with seeing what people had on their sneakers, like, Hmm. you know, what they were wearing on their feet or what what T-shirts they're wearing. Or, you know, you go home and you got fridge magnets or postcards on your fridge. And for me, in a way, these spaces were museums and these spaces Hmm. were galleries. And because we pay attention and they say and tell us something about where we've been or what we're doing Hmm. or what we're interested in or about our culture. And so it's been really fun seeing museum shops as mini museums, but people get to take a piece home with them. Mm. Uh, And there is a scale, there's almost like a scale from something that's seven bucks to something that's like multiple thousands of dollars. Mm. But if anyone's listening out at this and they're like, oh, Chantal, love her work. I can really see how we can take this to another level. Great. Give me me a call. Like I say, I'm totally open to that. But it's just been that my path has been one that is more... I, I don't know what the word is to describe it, but it's been more out in the public and yeah. it's it's still in these institutions, but it's been done more on my own terms. Yeah, and I think the overriding idea there is it's not either or, it's, it's and, yeah. right? it's both. 
And you've been able to thread that needle in your way. And I don't think, like, I know that you do fine art work that you are executing one of one. And then you also do stickers. And to me, they don't compromise in mm-hmm. each other. Like the the fine art, if anything, is more coveted because it's the rare one kind yeah. of thing. And it's interesting because I also, you know, speaking about what we were just a minute ago, there is this idea of like fine art, commercial, but then there's mm. also the factory. Mm. And that's one thing I haven't really explored. You know, you go to the Broad Museum or something like in LA and you look around and you see Warhol and Murakami and, you know, you see these massive artists, but you know that they have factories and, and hundreds and tens of people mm. making their art. And often it's... I. I sometimes find it a little bit discouraging when I go to places like that and you see like a big Kahindley Wiley painting, but then you know it was outsourced to other people who painted it. Mm. Or And there is that sense of like, oh, if I want to be here, do I need to have a factory? Mm. And I think that's not something that we really talk about in the sense of like how many craftsmen and women mm. are actually involved or creating the work of these living contemporary artists, Mm. which in a way by default become creative directors Mm. or designers of their work versus the artisans or the craftsmen Mm. or the executors of the work. And, And for me, doing something as little as a sticker is something that I've made and had printed, but I can pull it out there and and give Mm. it to someone and, and, like I said earlier, it almost feels like those stickers are seeds. Mm. And I've been giving stickers out for over 10 years. <laughs> I, I must have given out like tens of thousands of stickers mm. to people. And and it's nice because that creates a little bit of a community because mm. I've mostly been giving them out by hand to people for years. Mm. And so if you have one of those stickers and you see someone else that has a sticker, you're like, oh, do you know Chantel? And they're like, oh yeah, I do. And yeah. and so it's it's nice to hear the stories of something like a sticker that has this little message on it mm. that says, you are you or who are you or are you you? And how many people that's connected through this thread of just knowing me and, mm. and me giving them that sticker. But I think it's important to always think like small, medium, large, you mm. know, like- I like that. You know, I've, I've got a sticker, it's free. I've got a pen, mm. it's free. I'm gonna give it to you. I've got prints. They're affordable. If you want an entry point for art, mm. you can get one of those. I have really expensive fine artwork. You can get one of those. Mm. I do private commissions where mm. you can sit down with me and I interview you and then I go mm. away and create a piece for you. Mm. And you can spend a ton of money on that. But I'm not saying that my work is unaccessible to anyone. Mm. It's quite the opposite. I'm saying there is an entry level or an entry space for you on every level because I never want my work to be unaccessible or me as a human. Mm. And that's why I also spent a lot of time, you know, 2018. I I think early 2017, I was in Canada, in Toronto, and I was at a museum. And I turned around the corner and then this girl was like, holy shit, it's Chantal Pardin. <laughs> and then she froze and she didn't know what to say to me. And I was like, oh, I'm unaccessible. Mm. Like she's seen me in, in these magazines or mm. these books or in these museums and she doesn't know that I'm actually nice and approachable. Right. So after that, I said, I'm going to make myself more approachable by showing more of me. Huh. And I started a week in a life. I started a, a YouTube series, mm. a, a vlog series, and I did it for a year. 
And I just showed every week, I just made a video of what I was up to and put it up online on, on YouTube. And, and it's nice. I won a Shorty Award for it. And after that, I noticed that when people bumped into me on the street, they say, oh, hey, Chantel, hmm. like, how are you doing? Because they've heard my voice. Uh, I'm now not some unaccessible artist that just shows up at a talk somewhere or that they see in a magazine. They hear my voice. They've seen me, you know, out and about in the world doing something. They've heard me talk about my art in my archive. Uh, I became more accessible in that sense. And and so it's really interesting to see like the steps that you can make as an artist mm. and intentionally be more open and mm. more giving and more accessible. And I'm mm. sure it works in the opposite direction. You know, you want your work to be unaccessible and expensive and you want mm. to justify the value of your work by being uh, unapproachable and, mm. and distant and no one can get hold of you. And you have, if they want to get hold of you, the only way is through a gallery, through mm. someone, through another gallery. Uh, and that's one way of doing it, but it's not my way of doing it. So I think ultimately I'm just setting an, a nice example mm. of how you could do it as an artist and how you can be open and how you can share or how you can think about how people see you and your work and if that doesn't line up with how it is in your head you can take steps to to be more open or mm. to make a youtube channel or you know kind of give out stickers or give out pens and do these things that just create these little connections between you and people who are enjoying your work imagine listening to a podcast and not hearing an ad for a website builder you'd be like what kind of podcast is this we know you need your fix and we're not going to deprive you of that. At Universe, we believe websites are the main event, so of course we'd sandwich one in between our show. Here's the deal. Websites are dope, everyone needs one, and they can actually be fun to build and have some personality behind them. This is the part of the ad where I rattle off a list of all the things our website building product can do for you in hopes that you choose Universe over the competition. Create sites, build stores, analytics, email shipping off from your phone feels like playing with Legos, all that good stuff. We got it. I mean, you can make sites so good you'll shit yourself, but that's just brass tacks. At Universe, a website is so much more than just something you hear about on a podcast commercial. It's an extension of self. It's a way to interact creatively with the digital world. And we're hell-bent on helping the internet live up to its full potential. A more eclectic, more electric place. Because the internet shouldn't just be a space for squares. Grab a domain like .xyz and show those .com boomers what the internet's all about. Head to Universe. That's universe.se, but the dot is silent. Punch those puppies into the app store, my friend, and we'll see you out there. So you talked a little bit about the factory model, and it sounds like you know you, you don't know how to feel about, about it. But I think you know, to the earlier conversation, thinking about artists as business people or businesses, businesses make products in factories. Yeah. So how do you think about that? So right now I'm thinking about how do I feel about that and what can I do about that? And mm. so I do start, I do want to make product mm. and I do want to make businesses from my businesses mm. in the sense that I'm obsessed with non-alcoholic beer. Mm. So I'd love to create- Which one, one do you like? There's a whole bunch, you know, of the Lagunitas makes one. You got the uh, you like athletic the beer. Athletic, yeah. I like, I have, if we want, we can get rowdy and have a okay, couple of those. Perfect. I know how we're <laughs> going to finish this. Um, you know, and there's a lot of beer out there, but I'm like, well, what if I really, truly make an artistic beer? And that would be cool. 
yeah, I can put my art on it, but it's not about my art. Yeah. I'm thinking about the process of how the beer's made. I'm thinking about how the can looks. Yeah. I'm thinking about how it looks on the shelf, how it looks on the fridge. I'm thinking about what it tastes like, mm. how you drink it. I'm thinking about how it, it, it brings creatives together. I'm yeah. thinking about how you might drink it when you go and see like a women's football match. Yeah. Like, I would love to do that. And that's something I'm taking steps to right now, you know, so I'm, I'm making my deck and I'm, I'm doing my research. Yeah. And, and so I think there's lots of products or meaningful extensions in this health sector where I can take what I've learned. I can take my style thinking philosophy direction mm. and start to make product that doesn't necessarily have my art applied to it. Mm. but it has my thinking applied to it. Mm. And I think that's how I kind of, in a way, solve, not that there's an issue, but this is how I can solve doing things that are bigger than myself and my art, is by looking at these sectors that I actually care about and want to have an impact in and lending my thinking and my vision and my direction to these projects. So it sounds like you're comfortable with the idea of using the industrial process to make industrial things. But when you see a painting that was executed by a room of assistants, that, that feels disingenuous? For me, if I ever get to that point where people are painting my work, yeah. I just want to see their name credited on uh, the back of it. And right. I'm not going to pretend that I painted it. Mm. I'm going to show that it came from me, mm. but they, there were craftsmen and women mm. that helped to... Uh, bring it into reality. Yeah. And that's even, you know, some of the things that I've had fabricated before. I, I often will credit, and I do credit the fabricator. Hmm. That's someone that's just fabricated it. But if it's displayed meaningfully in a museum, hmm. I'm going to say fabricated by hmm. Pink Sparrow or, you know, whoever the fabricator was. Because in a way, I feel like they take that time to really put their hands into the, the craft of bringing your art into a reality. Yeah. And so if they were actually executing and painting my work, I don't think it's it hurts. So on the back of it, you know, Chantelle with the help or, you know, with the aid of and then the craftsmen and women who contributed to it. I agree. I think it's one of the things I always loved about film, mm. how you have credits. Yeah, yeah. And it shows everyone who worked on it. Yeah. Um and uh the truth is that a lot, of, a lot of things are collaborative, whether they're businesses, products, or art projects. Um, I think film probably does it best, video games also. Yeah. But, you know, we, we have a screen in the Universe app that is like an About Us screen. And we actually list out the websites of all the people who work at the company. So I think there's more we can do on that. I think, I, I think there's something really important about signing your work. Yeah. Especially if it's something you're proud of building, right? And that's the thing. It's another way of enjoying or bringing people into the process. Mm. And if these people were fundamentally a part of the process, give them credit, mm. you know, like let them share in the the provenance of the work and the legacy of the work. Yeah. Um, I don't think that devalues the work in any way. Mm. And for an artist that's always talking about transparency and responsibility and sharing the process for someone like myself, it would only make sense that that's something mm. I would do. Yeah. So I can imagine a Chantel factory <laughs> that people are like making totally different things in it. It may be in a shared style, but like, that's the whole point. Mm. The point is that you've got these individual brains pursuing their stream of consciousness. Yeah. Or whatever. That'd be cool. Mm -hmm. You should try that. 
Yeah, I should try that. And, you know, a lot of my work it is, we got the sirens again, um, you know, is a line work. And right. I often think about what if that line was painted and not drawn? Mm. But does it need to be? I don't know. I'm not there yet. How much do you think about form, right? Because I think, you know, one of the themes here is that your work is so intellectual. It's, or um, what I mean by that is that it's so ideas driven. It's so philosophy driven. And that's why, to me, it can transcend media. It's because it's about ideas. So whether it's in spoken word or, you know, a product or a painting, there are ideas there. But how much do you think about form about color about you know yeah all that i think because i am so process driven i don't think as much about form Mm. but i do think within the process there are other layers to that Mm. you know so for example if i'm drawing on a paper or a wall i know that my average coverage my Mm. average line coverage of that surface area is 10 to 11 (laughs) percent so actually when i'm drawing 90 percent of what i'm doing is space And Mm. I know my average speeds that I draw at. And I know my average combined amount of line lengths that Mm. I draw at. So there's all this kind of data or analytics Mm. I am curious about and I explored and I really dug into. And I think sometimes when you just look at a drawing, you don't get that information Hmm. you know you 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 don't know how long that combined amount of line is in that drawing you don't know that i drew that drawing at an average of five inches per second Hmm. you don't know that the average coverage of that space is is uh, 10% ink and 90% nothingness so there's something i would love to also be able to like articulate that more or kind of express that more with regards to form like I said, it's more process driven. It's more about being in the moment. Mm. I often think about where it's going to be or how it's going to be executed. Mm. Um, unless it's the product and you're exclusively pulling it on a form, then you're 100% thinking about the form. But if it's me and kind of in my own process, I'm usually thinking a lot about something I want to do, something I want to create. And Mm. that's how projects like, you know, my circuit boards, I I created these um, PCB boards. And that was because I was thinking a lot about technology, that the fact that we cover it up. You know, Mm. you get a TV, you cover it up with a box. You get a record player, Mm. we cover it up. You get a cooker, you cover it up. You get a microwave, you cover it up. Mm. And we cover up the inner workings. Mm. And so I was thinking a lot about how do you make those things transparent? And then what if... Uh, a circuit board, a printed circuit board, instead of those lines being super efficient and straight, what if those are in the form of a drawing Mm. that told a story about the components on that board and the function of the board? And we exchange a little bit of efficiency with creativity. And Mm. what if we expose things? And so sometimes there's a lot of thinking like that. And then through that thinking, Mm. that drives the form of, oh, I should make my own PCB boards and express the thinking of wanting to exchange 100% efficiency with some creativity. Or sometimes it might just be a surface or a canvas that is just practical that I can get my hands on. Mm. You know, I'm walking through World Trade Center, the Oculus, every day because I live in Jersey City. And so that's my train station Mm. when I'm coming into Manhattan. And so every day I'm walking past these giant screens and I'm saying to myself, I want to know what my art looks like on these giant screens. Mm. So then I start a mission to figure out how do I get my art on these giant screens. And then a year later, my art is on all 21 giant screens (laughs) in the Oculus. So sometimes it's just things that are practical, that are in my sight, Mm. that 
I'm either integrating with or interacting with or walking past or experiencing. Mm. And I think that's where the non-alcoholic beer came from is because I'm drinking it. And when I'm drinking it, I want to see my art on it. But those are the things that lead me on these like different missions. I do agree that the non-alcoholic beer packaging is just not inspiring at all. There isn't really a non-alcoholic beer that is good tasting, that is creative, that has good packaging, that has a good story. It's a good idea. It's like the liquid death of... Yeah, exactly. It's like the liquid death of NA beer. Yeah. Did you read there was a great New Yorker article about like non-alcoholic beer and wine? No, no. That's how I actually got into it. Yeah, it's good. So... Tell me a little bit more about, I love this idea of the analytics on your work. Like, is that something that you've collected scientifically? Is it more of an intuitive thing that you've realized over time? Like, how did that come to be? So I think, you know, I was at uh, MIT for a couple of years at the Media Lab in a lab called Social Computing. And when I was there, I just got to daydream a lot about the path that my pen takes. And Mm. so, for example, I have a mural in the lab and I think it's the lab now is in biometrotronics. Hmm. They inherited the, the social computing lab. But so, for example, when I drew that mural in MIT in the media lab, I got to look up and daydream and be like, oh, I wonder how long the combined amount of line is in this. Hmm. And when you're at MIT, you can think out loud mm. and someone says, I know. <laughs> Give me a second. Right. How high is the wall? How long is the wall? How thick is the pen that you are using? They make a little app that calculates Mm. the amount of ink or blackness in that space. And then they say, oh, that line is roughly 1,164 feet long. I say, oh, thank you. Mm. Um, You know, I did a lot of experiments with string uh, and measuring the line and the length of my work. and, And I think ultimately... There's always been this curiosity with where my work comes from and this curiosity of who I am creatively. Mm. And so I often, when I draw, if anyone's seen me draw live, I talk about this and I explain this. But when I draw live, I create a skeleton. Mm. I call it the DNA of the drawing. It's like a structure. And that structure is like one initial line that takes a little journey on the paper. It takes a little dance. Mm. And when I finish that one line... I have these pockets of negative space. Right. And so for many, many years, I was always curious, like, what if I was given that same DNA, that same skeleton Mm. for periods of time over years, and I would just unconsciously fill it in? Would I always draw the same thing? Mm. Do these negative spaces, in a way, subconsciously, predict what I'm going to draw or know what I'm going to draw. Mm. And so the answer to this is mostly yes. Mm. And so that means that there is this core that reacts to spaces and to lines in a Mm. similar way repetitively. Mm. And that is that core, that fingerprint, that identity, which is ultimately me. Mm. And so through that questioning of well, what are these things that ultimately make up me as a fingerprint, as an artist? How is that also reflected in other ways? And mm. so that's why I also started to measure the the speeds that I draw at with different pens and hmm. why I started to measure the amount of negative spaces in my drawings. And one day, I never really done this, but imagine if I create a drawing and I know that the combined amount of line in that drawing is uh, five feet long then wouldn't it be really nice to have a drawing next to it, which is like, it has a blob of ink mm. on it, which shows the amount of <laughs> ink 
right. as a circle or as a shape mm. in correlation with the space that is, uh, you know, the amount of ink that's actually in this drawing. It's like the Big Bang. Exactly. You know, you Be- take this little circle and it explodes into this whole landscape. Exactly, because... What I'm doing, it looks like a very simple line. Mm. And in a way it is because it's only 10% of line on Mm. average coverage on that whole page. But you can get so much expression. And also the fact that I can draw a face or my faces are drawn with four lines, nose, Mm. mouth, eye, eye. But Mm. each time, each face has its own unique personality and expression. Mm. And so that's kind of magical as well, just knowing that four lines can create infinite amount of expressions and personality. Yeah, it's just because the, 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 the canvas is infinite. So when you draw that line, you're making a million micro decisions a second as to how you want to carve up that space. And so as you make that mark, it's also defining the space around it, which is you know what you're saying. When you're when you're doing that, when you're making a face, how conscious of are you of the kind of personality you want to inject in that finished face when you start? I'm following the pen. Mm. And I've always spoken about this in the sense that we feel like we pick up a pen and we've picked up a tool, mm. but actually we're the tool. Right. We're being used. Mm. We're the ones being told where to go. Mm. And so when I pick up a pen and I follow that pen, I'm being used and told where to go and I just follow it. Mm. And so at the end of it, and it's always really nice to think about. So imagine if I'm doing a massive drawing, like a 10 foot by 10 foot drawing. When I'm drawing, I'm so close to the canvas. You know, I'm a few inches away from the canvas. So I don't actually know what the bigger picture is until I step back. And so it's always a nice magical surprise when you're drawing, you're drawing, you're trying to fill in the canvas, one line leads to another, you fill in this negative space, this negative space, this negative space, and then you finish the, you feel like you're finished, so then you stop because it's a gut feeling and you've listened to yourself for many times so that you know when to stop. And so then you stop and you step back. And then for the first time, you see the drawing that you created. And that drawing looks like it always existed. Mm. And now that drawing is bigger and more confident than you. Mm. So it must have existed before you. Mm. And you were used as a tool to bring it into existence. Mm. So now that you and others can see it. Mm. And every expression in that picture and every face in that drawing is unique. And in a way is looking at you and Mm. questioning you. And so I love that feeling every time to step back and see a canvas or a Mm. wall that is bigger than me and more confident than me Mm. and perhaps might live longer than me, Mm. that knows more than me, but it came from my hand or it came from the tool of me that's being used to create this work in this time, in this moment, in this place, in this space. Mm. That's so cool. One thing I'm picking up, we talked a bit at the museum about this and also in this conversation, which is you talked about your goals 10 years ago, you would have said the same things, make music, etc. You talked about wanting to grow your practice and also like wrestling with why do I have those same goals or whatever. And I actually am realizing that I think that the way that you've approached your career is very similar to how you approach your work like your specific artwork, uh, which is that it's very stream of consciousness. Like as far as I can tell, it doesn't seem like you have a grand design Mm -hmm. in your head for what success looks like. You're kind of riding the wave of your mind in a a lot of senses because we've known each other now for probably a decade or more. more. 
And I always sense from you like a, a bit of a, t- a tension with that kind of ambition, because you're very ambitious, but maybe not with like a clear defined destination. But I actually think that's, that's who you are. That, there is no, like you're riding the wave. Yeah, I think there's probably some truth in that. Yeah. Almost maybe I am like myself close up to the canvas. Yeah. I'm drawing, but I can't see the bigger picture. Yeah. And very rarely am I able to step back and mm. see my bigger goals and my bigger ideas. And mm. maybe that's okay. Like maybe that's the thing that keeps me in the moment, that keeps me present, that keeps me doing no, no, what I don't I think do. it's just okay. I think yeah. it's what makes you so great at what you do. Yeah. Like I think that your ability to be present, but in almost like the near future, it allows you to be so flexible to the world and to new learnings and questions. Like hearing you describe how you, you take on new projects, they're question driven. You, mm-hmm. You've articulated just what if it was done like this? Those questions are only possible as reactions to the world as it is, right? It's impossible to have a question about 20 years in the future because there's so many things that are going to happen between now and then that question is not going to be relevant. But you're you're looking at the world, you're asking questions, you're reacting to it, and then you're going down the ones that are yeah. interesting to you. And then it is interesting because I do feel like, and like you said, we've been talking and we have these talks and I'm like, you know, what's what's your advice on this? What's your advice on that? And I do feel like, even though it feels like I'm, it takes me a long time to get somewhere, I feel like it takes me the, around, the right yeah. amount of time for me to get there. Totally. And that's the same with the music. That's the same with the drawing. That's the same with pretty much everything I'm doing. Mm. It feels incredibly slow as a process, but I think it's the right amount of time. I totally agree. I also find it very inspiring personally because I think that my instinct is probably the opposite. I think that I can pretty clearly see what I want way early. The challenge with that is you can sometimes be closed to the world in the process and missing out on some great ideas, some great interactions, some other ways of thinking. So for me, it's actually a process of trying to be more open. It's a dance. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I think ultimately I do have many of these like bigger overarching goals that mm. I want to achieve. And a lot of them, I do start doing them. Mm. It's just then it comes down to the people that you need to continue to do them. Mm. And I I think I've learned this lesson very late in life and very slowly. And that's like, you can't do everything yourself. Mm. And I've had the opposite ingrained in me because Mm. if you're someone that hasn't had much support Mm. for most of your life, Mm. you just get used to doing things yourself and delegating everything to yourself. Mm. And the last couple of years, I had just had this epiphany of like, oh, wait, any artist really that you see doing massive, amazing, big projects, right. they have a whole team and infrastructure mm. behind them. What have I been doing? Mm. <laughs> what have I been doing all these years? But in that reflection, what could I achieve if I find the right people mm. to help me with some of these projects? And, right. you know, so for example, a few years ago, I started a, a new YouTube station or a new YouTube series called Provenance where I would go into my archive and I pull out an artwork and I would talk about the provenance of it and the origin of it and, and like mm. why I made it. And I did that because I think as living artists, we can talk about our work. And, right. you know, I go to a lot of museums and you have some curator 
basically making up a lot of stuff about the artist's <laughs> intention. And I know they're making it up because yeah. even as the artist that is creating this work themselves, hmm. sometimes I'm like, was this 2011 or 2010? Right. I have no idea and I make up a date. Right. And so if I'm making up a date <laughs> and I made it, I know that there's curators and people up there making dates and, and making up other information. And so, you know, I wanted to create almost this like living archive as an artist to go into my archive, pull out an artwork, talk about the provenance of it, mm. talk about how I store it or why I kept it or where mm. it's been. And also as a way of encouraging other artists to do the same. Mm. And that's something I did like a whole series with it, but I want to do more. I want to do, you know, I have a couple thousand pieces in my archive. I want to do more series of that. And I want to go to other artists studio and say, hey, like put a bunch of stuff in a box and take something out. And I'm going to ask you about where it came from and the origin of it. Mm. And so something like that, it needs a producer. It needs a third mm. party. It needs someone to like, book that time on my calendar and like have the mm. videographer there and have everything set up and I just show up. And mm. so there's definitely like a lot of projects like I have like that <laughs> where I need some help or some support or some production where I can just show up and get it done and then, you know, put this stuff out there in the world. Totally. Yeah. I think what I've always really admired about you is, uh, you know, you're really ambitious and in a way that's not like threatening or aggressive at all. Have you always been that way? Like, have you always been a big dreamer? I guess so. I've always known that there must be something else yeah. in the sense that no one in my family even finished high school. Hmm. So to then be someone that graduated top of their year from a big fancy art school called Central St. Martins hmm. and went to Japan, like learned Japanese and then later was like a fellow <laughs> at Columbia, uh, you know, um, an, an adjunct at NYU and a visiting scholar at MIT and like been on the cover of New York Times a couple of times, choreographed a ballet, had multiple museum shows. Like there must be something about me <laughs> <laughs> and that's just to name a few things. But for me, they're just things. Like right. I walk in a room and I'm not like, oh, hey, I've done things. Yeah. You know, like, I'm like, the most grounded, chilled person in the room. And people sometimes like, oh, you're an artist, good luck, you know? Mm. Um, <laughs> and and I think that's like, that's just been my nature. Like, that's how I am. Like, I mm. I think the work can speak for itself. If you, if you know, you know, and you know that I work hard and you know that I'm kind and you know that I try hard. Mm. But I think ultimately I've always had that. And I've always had this sense of there's something pushing me trying to make me progress or move forward. Mm. And in a way, that's a blessing and a curse because you never look back at what you've done. You just keep moving forward because you're leaning into the future. Right. And so you're leaning into the present, leaning into the future. If you've just achieved something that was a big milestone, it doesn't matter. You don't care because mm. like you're on to the next thing. Yeah. And so often I'm very hard on myself and I don't give myself time to celebrate projects or pat myself on the back because I'm like, I've got to make something else or I'm curious about something else or like, let me, I'm doing something else. And I need to work on that and just take a pause sometimes after I've achieved something and acknowledge that I've achieved something. But I think, like I said, even just being here, sitting on your couch in Brooklyn, like I should not be here. I'm an anomaly. Like, I shouldn't have left where I grew mm. up. Like mm. I shouldn't have finished school. Mm. Like I shouldn't, you know, there's so from the beginning, there's so many things just about must be about my nature mm. that don't make sense, yeah. you know? So I think that's just a thread 
of me using some inherent personality sense that something is pushing me, wanting me to do something and me just kind of like, all right, I'm going to do this or go here or take this risk or take that risk or just do something next. Because I know the life for me, that was the one of like me living where I grew up and not finishing school and getting pregnant as a teenager. Like that wasn't my life. So there's a whole blank canvas out there for me. Mm. Yeah. I think drive is one of the most mysterious things in the world. Mm -hmm. Like I think it's really hard to know. Like I can, can one learn drive? It doesn't seem like it. Do you have like a internally for yourself? Can you feel like a, a flame or like a fire? It's like yes and no. So I have a drive and I always want to push myself and explore and experiment. But there is another side of me that will then stay at home and watch six hours of crime mm. TV to switch off. Yeah. So I'm either like on or off. Yeah. Like but I, if you zoom out, like, of course, everyone. Yeah, yeah. Weird. But when you take an inventory of like your soul, so to speak, yeah. like, uh, there's some like thing that's pushing you forward. I don't know what it is. I feel like ultimately I'm an explorer. Yeah. I Didn't you write a book called, uh, wasn't there something like a kid's book that had Explorer in it? It was called Wave. Yeah, Wave. It was called Wave. But actually I want to write a book. I want to write almost like a creative memoir that you can interact with. Yeah. Um, So I'm trying to figure that out. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because, you know, I'm not someone, I'm not a big reader. Like I've always avoided reading books. So. I want to create a book that people can read, but also something that keeps them engaged. So interesting that you're not a book person. No, because I had a really shit education and I'm super mm. dyslexic. Mm. So I never had a foundation of reading. Like I, my mom never read books to me or people didn't mm. read books to me as a kid. And I never read, read books as a kid. Mm. So like I didn't have that upbringing mm. of like type and words mm. that I think ultimately is a foundation into them reading mm. book. And and it's funny because people assume that if you've not read books, then you're not educated. Mm. And I've probably read 10 books in my life, mm. but that doesn't mean I'm uneducated. Totally. Like I've lived out in the world and I've grown up in the places that I've grown up. And so I'm educated and I pay attention in different ways. And so yeah. I think we can all consume mm. education and knowledge through other means. It doesn't necessarily have to be books, but that said, I would like to write a book that also is a book that if you're not a reader, you would still want to read. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that resonates. The reason I said the, the point about books is because you're, you're definitely a words person. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're a words person. You, you're... But I'm a simple words person. I never really like to use words I don't know how to spell. And that's a lot of words. So I think the way that I speak is also just quite simple. Yeah, and but there's often. a complexity. I mean, even yeah. in, you're an amazing speaker. You know, mm-hmm. like you, and you're not, you, the words you use might be simple, but the way that you're using them, you're painting pictures, you're painting ideas that are very insightful, complex. You know, it's interesting because we're sitting next to a wall of books, but a lot of these books are actually picture books. Yeah. And I realize that for myself also, I'm very curious. Uh, I love to learn things, but actually like I, I have a very hard time sitting through a 500 page book. It's really difficult for me. Um, and even like, Fiction in some ways even harder. Yeah. Um, but I also like am consuming information, you know, everywhere and all the time. And I think that our notions about education are are really backwards. They're programmed to us based on the the business of education. And in some ways, I think 
at least being for me, like I, I didn't finish college. And in some ways that was a real gift for myself because I never had the notion that I was educated. Mm-hmm. And that meant that I was always on my toes, right? And like, I, you know, I had to go learn the thing, you know, whereas I think maybe if I had an advanced degree, I might feel, well, yeah, I know that thing. Yeah. And then what does that really mean? It just meant that you consumed a bunch of knowledge from one path from someone and then oh, yeah. certified College degree. Most of the people who have advanced degrees are uh, in some fashion, if that's the limit of their education, they're the least educated, right? Because yeah, it's just, yeah. there's so much more to the world than that. Yeah. No offense to anyone that's had yeah. is that path, but you know, the world is full of knowledge. And, and as we were saying earlier outside, like the world is like your gym, it's your school, yeah. it's your education. There's so much that you can uh, learn and study and so many people you can learn from. And, and you know, nowadays you can be so practical and just go out there and learn. And I was saying that in a way I, I was thinking maybe I wanted to go to school and do like a master's in music or something like that. But then I have the whole world at my fingertips and I can just go up, go to things or show up at things or play at things Mm. and experiment with things. And in a way, like I'm going to learn so much more Mm. from doing that. And it's going to be so much more exciting and and out of like a structure that kind of limits my location and place and space and everything. Yeah. And I think that works because you're so self-driven and motivated, right? Which makes sense given your work, right? Like a lot of the themes are individuality, finding your voice, and so it would make sense that you'd go and craft your own education in that in that way. Mm-hmm. But there is, you know, I think it is an interesting question about like where does drive come from? Yeah. Um, and also like what is your idea of success? You mm-hmm. know, because I think those two kind of go hand in hand. And there are questions that I always think about, you know, when you're the only person in your family that has finished school and traveled or, you know, explored or has a job in in some senses you're like why am I different Mm. like why is their understanding of success just waking up feeding the kids watching tv maybe going to work maybe not going to work and that's okay but why is that not okay for me Mm. is there something wrong with me like why is my idea of success like unobtainable and Mm. sometimes I do envy some members of my family because they're happy yeah. They're successful. They're content. Yeah. I call this the curse of dissatisfaction. <laughs> yeah, just... yeah, but it, I, it keep, that's what keeps you busy. That's what keeps yeah. you hungry. That's what keeps you creative. That's what keeps you exploring. That's what it's a keeps blessing you... and a curse. Yeah, yeah. Two sides of the coin. Mm-hmm. It's a curse because it doesn't stop, but it's a blessing because it's this constant source of inspiration and energy. Yeah. So when you look ahead into the future... What's exciting you? What are you thinking about? So I'm excited. You know, I, I've been speaking a lot. Of, this is probably the most about music I've ever spoken about <laughs> in my life. But that's because a few months ago, I feel like I was put on this path where I acknowledged that music is this thing that's come in and out of my life for over a decade or more. And I've always just pushed it away or ignored it. And so this is the first time in my life where I'm saying, I'm not going to ignore you any longer. Mm. I'm actually going to pick you up and explore you and be consistent with you and see what happens. So either I might just do music 
and do these performances a few times a month and then just push it through my system or it might take me somewhere else. But I'm so excited mm. to, for the first time, really lean into it, to explore it, to be consistent with it and learn more about it. And so that's really exciting for me. And then I'm also excited that I, for the first time also in my life, realize that I can't do everything by myself mm. and I need to find people who want to help me help me mm. and that is in a way it's exciting because I know that the world is like is um I don't know what right the word is but it's like my oyster in a way like yeah. there are people out there that might be really excited about working with me and have the skill set so that we can take this thinking take this medium take this identity and really push it to a whole nother level and create meaningful legacy mm. on this planet. So yeah. I'm excited about Hell that yeah. too. Chantel Martin Inc. Yeah, Chantel. I have that, that's my company yeah, name. There you go. Yeah, Chantel Martin Inc. Chantel Martin Inc. is very robust, even as a one-person yeah. show. And it's going to continue to get bigger and bigger. And I can't wait to see your fingerprint uh, on the world. And, and to your point, it's very much for the consumer of it or the experiencer of it, a mirror, right? So it's, yeah. it's not, it doesn't feel heavy handed. You talked about like this notion of success for you. Do you have a sense of what success is? Success equals freedom and yeah. freedom is the means and the access to build mm. and create what I want, how I want, wherever I want. Mm. And so when I want to build a giant Chantal Martin pay- playground, I'm mm. able to do it. Yeah. When I want to create a synthesizer that create, you know, mixes my voice and my handwriting, I'm able to do it. Right. Um, when I want to create a product or a brand or a piece of furniture, I'm mm. able to do it. You know, when I want to create a movie or an animation, I'm able to do it. Mm. So success for me, I think is that freedom to be able to create when I want, how I want, wherever I want in any medium. Hmm. That's great. I think that's a good mission statement, by the way, for oh, Chantal really? Martin Inc. Yeah. Okay, yeah. great. I'm going to put that down then because I've been, <laughs> I don't have a mission statement. So there you go. No, and I think it's also reflective of the work. The yeah. work is about freedom. Like you can just see it in the work. So Chantal and I met like over a decade ago, as I said, and I, I met Chantel in a store that sells de- jeans. Yeah. And Chantel's famous now, but at the time, you know, it was less so. And I was immediately captivated by the art before meeting her. And I said, who? who? I think there were like skateboards and denim. Well, it was three by one. Yeah. So Which was, was a really cool denim It's store. a store. I don't know. I think it's still around, but they don't have that store anymore. So it was started by this guy called Scott Morrison and really great um, salvage, denim, custom. Yeah. They made it in the store. Yeah. All custom made, all made in the store, highest quality fancy jeans and then you come in (laughs) and I was doing uh, basically I was creating an installation in the shop so I was creating these drawings on vellums and drawing on bottles like I do and and, uh, maybe even drawing on sneakers and and these other items and so I was using the store at that time almost like my studio and creating this installation that was going to be on display for a few months there and I remember you walking in and coming at the back and we were talking and you're like yeah I have a company or (laughs) We're over here. You should come see us sometime. Um, and then uh, you were one of my first ever commissioners for totally. for a wall commission. And so I came in and, you know, did a drawing in your office at the yeah. time then. And 
and you know I had so much fun and um and for me I just remember being surprised at how big you could think mm. or how big mm. you were thinking mm. you know because you were building an educational company that was uh having an impact in like mm. thousands or millions mm. of people and i was like wow like you mm. this is you you like mm. this, this guy <laughs> this you 20 know? year old yeah. yeah this guy um but there was something so inspiring mm. about that for me because like yeah you were pretty young mm. but you were thinking so big mm. and then you were actually doing it mm. you know i feel like we've always been kindred spirits in different ways but i you know i saw chantelle's work the form of it immediately resonated even before meeting her and then I met her and I was like, wow, she's amazing. And I had this office that was basically just white walls. And I asked Chantel if she could just draw on the walls. And she did. So she came, she had like a ladder and she had an iPad and she asked us questions. And just two days, I think you spent. Yeah. And like- I was drawing with a really fine pen there. So it <laughs> took a lot longer than it used, like it does now. Yeah. It was so cool though. And I loved how you made like, it was very quirky and it wasn't just murals, but like you would add little characters in like the corners that were like saying something. Mm-hmm. My work was very, um, it was much more detailed yeah. then than it is now. So yeah. there was definitely a lot more kind of characters or words or yeah realistic kind of things in 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 the artwork itself that were reflective right. of the things that we discussed or yes. reflective of the sentiment of the company mm. at the time so for you have you you it's now more abstract i feel like it's more um is the word iconography or it's more symbol mm, it's symbolic because it, you know i think it is interesting as you get older as an artist mm you become simplified more and more in the work mm. because there's less I, I there's more I can say with less. Mm. And so then I feel like I was trying to say a lot, mm. but now I'm still trying to say a lot, but I don't need as much. Mm. And also now that I have a thicker line as well, like right. it's much bolder and more confident. Yeah. But it is interesting if I look back at the work I did when I lived in Japan, so detailed, mm. super, super detailed. And then at that stage when I met you, not as detailed, but still very detailed compared mm. to now. It's so simple. Mm. Uh, and then maybe when I'm in my eighties, you know, it's just that little blob mm. on the canvas with surrounded by all this white space and, and I can, you know, justify that's cool. that. And it's interesting because for me, the work that's resonated of yours with me the most has been the thicker brush strokes, the simpler. And that's because, yeah, it's, it's more confident, it's saying more with yeah. less. But I only could get there if right. I worked through all these other thicknesses totally. of lines. And so mm. a friend um, kind of, you know, made a nice comment in a sense that like my uh, periods of life are reflective of like my thicknesses of pen. Mm. So, you know, there's like the fine pen kind of mm. period and then there's the medium pen and then there's like the fat pen and, mm. you know, then who knows what the future is as well. Mm. What did you study at Central St. Martin? I studied graphic design Mm. and specialized in illustration. And it's interesting because I wanted to do fine art, but then I realized that that was for rich kids. Mm. And I actually thought, okay, I'm going to school. So I should try and study something that I can get a job with after. Mm. And so I studied graphic design and in a way that wasn't, I'm, I always want to do the opposite to what everyone's doing. Mm. So I studied graphic design, but, in those three years, I very rarely used the computer because everyone was using the computer. Right. So I wanted to create work that didn't use a computer. Mm. Uh, but then that meant I left with not 
really any of those skills that you should have when you <laughs> use a computer. So it didn't really like work for me in that sense. But and then I specialize in illustration, but uh, I also realized I wasn't great at illustration either because you, that means you have a brief and you have to follow mm. a brief. Right. And I don't really like following a brief or being told what to do. But I managed to take those briefs and, and answer it in my own ways. And so I, a lot of the work that I made at St. Martin's, and I think the reason that I did okay is because I used that time as a way of self-reflecting mm. and, and doing like self-exploratory work. Mm. So I looked into my like final projects at St. Martin's was just looking at kind of how fucked up my household was that I was growing up in mm. and kind of the environment that I grew up in. And it was a um, kind of a, a, a deep dive into Thamesmead where I grew up and I kind of really dissected this council state, these projects that I grew up in. And so it was a very personal project mm. that I ended up doing for my final project. But I think ultimately... I did, yeah, I did graphic design and illustration, but I never really fell into those paths mm. after school. Were you doing sort of line drawings then? Was it similar style? Or? So, you know, I, I, I loved the work that I was doing then because it, it was just so audacious in a way. Mm. Like, so for example, if we got a brief, I can't remember what it was about. It was like, make a mask. I would show up with like a pint of milk and I'd tie string around this milk and put holes in it and take everyone outside and swing the milk around. And then I would swing this milk around and like cover the walls and say like, this is, these are the masks that we wear outside, <laughs> you know? Or, or I remember um, there was a project where I wore this apron and I covered yeah. it with like tomato juice. And then I made these puppets and I, I put these puppets into like uh, buckets of tomato juice so it looked like blood and then I made this tape recording that said let the devil take you there and then I did this performance with these puppets and this like fake blood huh. and that was my artwork so most of my artwork uh was ephemeral it was performance hmm. and then at the end of that like first or second year I can't remember which it was you had to show up with your portfolio and then I just showed up with myself <laughs> And I said, I am my portfolio, yeah. you know, and then you're at St. Martin. So they're like, okay, that's great. Right. <laughs> you know, wow. um, so a lot of the work that people will be like, I, I made this really nice poster mm. uh, and, you know, I printed it on really nice, expensive paper. Yeah. Like I was just going the complete opposite and huh. just really swinging something or killing something or huh. Also, I think when you're like a teenager, you're, I was in my, you're kind of obsessed with death and mm. um, memento mori. And, and so mm. I would create these, my character that I drew at that time was called Hangman. Mm. And so I, I would make giant, like life-size cardboard hangmen and like go to the store and buy like a pig's heart and like mm. pull it in there and bring it to school. And so it was definitely uh, a weird, you know, I was get I was, trying to get stuff out or trying to understand life or trying mm. to understand how I fit it in. And, and so I think a lot of the work was very dark, mm. very performative, very explorative because I was just trying to like figure out who I was or what I was or where I was going with this. And, and like I had this outlet. And so I really used that outlet as, mm. as a way of just expressing things. Mm. I could see, even though your work right now, the work that I've seen is not gory at all. It's the opposite. It's so, it's friendly in a lot mm. of ways. But I, there is an existential quality to the work 
even all these, you know, the questions of like, who are you? Those are existential questions. So I can see the connection. When did you make the leap though in form from that kind of performative graphics, uh, you know, gory stuff to to what it looks like today? I think there was a middle place, which was Japan that Mm. kind of, you know, so even in London, you know, some of my projects is I went to the local mortuary and I made crucifixes and like I, Hmm. you know, on the plaque of the crucifixes, I dedicated them to different moments of my life. And my business card at the time was one of these um, memorial cards that you get that you put on someone's flowers once they die and like my mum saw this business card and cried was like why is your name on this um so it was like really really dark do you know why like could was it articulate in your head I was angry yeah like I you know I was angry I had quite a fucked up childhood you know an environment that you can't control you know I had like abusive stepdads and like I'm in England I'm I'm in a working class system. No one in my family's finished school. I don't know what the future is for me. There's there's no like, oh, you can be this Chantel or you can be that yeah. Chantel. You're completely lost in this environment. And then suddenly one thing leads to another and I'm in art school. Mm. But I shouldn't be there because like, typically like someone like me doesn't make it there based on where I'm from and my upbringing. But suddenly I'm there and I have- How did this, you get there by the way? I got there because my art teacher in- secondary school like high school told me not to apply for art school because I wouldn't get in hmm. and so I applied <laughs> like but I Opposite, didn't even want, I didn't, I didn't even want to go yeah. to art school yeah. like but when you're when you're young and no one is telling you what you can do mm. and then someone tells you what you can't do you say okay I'm going to do that yes so this teacher was like, don't, Chantel, don't apply for art school because you won't get in. And in a way, maybe he's been responsible yeah. because he hasn't known anyone like me get in. Right. And so I applied to art school. I didn't even want to go to art school, but mm. suddenly I'm at art school and now I have this outlet to express all this anger mm. that I have. I'm angry at London mm. because of where I'm from and right. like the limitations I have on my life. I'm angry for the environment that my mother let me grow up in. Mm. You know, I'm angry at how people treat me when I walk out of my house because I'm brown. Like mm. I'm angry that I don't have access to the things that I want to mm. do. And then you're a teenager. Mm. Um, and so I really use the art to get that anger out. Then when I graduated art school, I moved to Japan. I'm not angry at Japan. Uh-huh. They didn't do anything wrong to me. There isn't like a class culture there mm. for me. I'm not from that culture. So subconsciously, I'm not playing into the roles of of that culture. Suddenly I can be me for the first Mm. time or start to discover who I am. And then I'm surrounded by a culture where like kawaii, like cute things are actually Mm. cool. And so I got to see my work come from angry to like creepy cute. (laughs) And there's definitely like a transition where you can see my work going creepy cute. So the monsters or the Mm. angry words become a little bit lighter, a little bit softer. There's bears appearing. Mm. Um, You know, there's softer characters appearing. Mm. Uh, Maybe they they still look like monsters, but they have uh, lighter faces on them, you Mm. know, like in in the sense of they're a little bit happier or more optimistic. Mm. Uh, Perhaps some of the words I'm using in my work uh, become a lot lighter. Uh, Now my work is becoming creepy, cute, but more diaristic Mm. versus angry and hopeless. Mm. And so then... 
I'm starting to do work live. And then when I'm doing live, I'm more about in the present and in the moment versus mm. in the past. And now I get to create work that just reflects now versus mm. then. Mm. And I think that was definitely the path for the evolution of just getting out of the environment that I was from so that no one was projecting onto me and I wasn't living up to any stereotypes. Mm. So I could actually start to get on that path of finding my way and start to figure out who I actually was at the core without all of this cultural stereotypes. You know, in England, when I was a kid, I'd open my mouth and someone's already judging me based on my accent, what class I'm in, what type of education I'm in, what part of London I'm from, mm. how much money I have, how much access I have. Then they're looking at the color of my skin and they're judging me on that. When I went to Japan, they were like, oh, where are you from? Hmm. And I say London. And they're like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> and there wasn't that layer or right. layers of judgment that I would get as a child that just continued to make me feel helpless and hopeless. Hmm. And so I think it, it, in a way, like I am the artist I am today because I got out and right. I went to somewhere where no one knew me. Hmm. I love the, uh, the framing there of, you know, it sounds like in London you were reacting against your environment. So your work was a reaction fundamentally. So you're running almost away from something. Mm. And then when you were in an environment like Japan where you didn't have that adversity, you could be for something instead of being not something. A hundred percent. Yeah, totally. And I think that transition was really amazing. And, and it made me be more open mm. because coming from where I was from that you weren't exposed to a lot. You know, mm. you're not exposed to different languages or culture or food or smells and people and then so now living in japan at that time everything's different right. and so it makes you more open to explore and try things and and that's when i first ended up doing like a 10-day vipassana meditation mm. retreat um and that was amazing because day eight like my hearing just got so much better and i realized like my whole life i'd been suppressing my hearing mm. to just survive like i just dialed down all my senses and was like pretty numb but then after like doing this really intense meditation there I realized that when everything like kind of came back to like level I was like oh wow like for the first time I felt my heartbeat in my chest and I realized I'd never in my whole life felt my heartbeat in my chest wow. because I dialed down my senses to survive I realized that I couldn't really hear that great before until my hearing came back because I dialed down my hearing and my senses just to survive mm. um, and so like I'm so grateful and fortunate that I ended up in Japan mm. and in a culture that allowed me to just open up a little bit more and explore these things and find meditation mm. and find really drawing again uh, and like dig deeper into like who I am how long were you in Japan for Five years, huh. yeah. And then you've been in the States now for a decade? Uh, probably more. more, like 13 yeah. years, yeah. something like that. Yeah. How do you like America? It, it is what it is. You know, I, I live here and it's home and I've been here for longer than almost I've been in many other places. You know, it has its struggles and, yeah. and everything, but also like Japan, I'm not from here. Right. So a lot of the rules that exist mm. here and a lot of the culture that exists here, I don't have to partake in it mm. because I'm not from it. Yeah. Um, and I think you have that extra layer of freedom as a foreigner from mm. the UK here mm. where you can ignore certain things, mm. you know. All right. Well, one last question, which is if you had infinite resources, so total freedom, you could do anything tomorrow, infinite resources, 
What would it be? So if someone said, Chantal, here's a bunch of resources and money. Yeah. I would use that money to hire someone to build a team around me. Okay. And then with that team, we would go through my list of all my projects that I want to make and just start knocking them off. That sounds very achievable, Chantal. Yeah, <laughs> I know. But is I think like, weren't you telling me earlier about like someone was saying, write down all your goals and then like, you know, that you well, want to achieve in the future and then they're actually, yeah, they're saying, achievable. So, so we had Yael uh, on the podcast and she she's very goal oriented. Yeah, She writes lists, like a life list of the things that she wants to accomplish. And then I was talking about Debbie Millman and I heard an interview with her where she described this practice of visioning your life 10 years from now and it happens. It does. You know, I think the biggest audacious goal is to have the most recognize, recognizable line on the planet. Mm. So working backwards That's from cool. there. That's cool. I like that. So if I have the most recognizable line on the planet, what did I do to get there? By the way, that's great to work backwards from as a goal. Um, and I think what's cool about that is when you say the most recognizable line, I think what you mean is not like the same mark. It's like an infinite... Uh, array of that line, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Infinite versions. Takes different form, different mediums, yeah. different executions. Yeah. yeah. When I can imagine in my mind, even though there's no such thing as Chantel Martin al- non-alcoholic beer, I can imagine it. Yeah. So by the way, you're tracking because like if you said, imagine a Chantel Martin car, I can imagine that. Yeah. Um, so I think you just need to build that yeah. world. Okay, great. <laughs> Easy, easily done. Yeah. So oh, done. super easy. Yeah. No, but you're going to do it. Amazing. Hey, Chantel, thanks so much. This is amazing. Thank you. So nice to catch up. And uh, like I said, this is the latest I've ever talked this long for, I believe. So it's nice and, and you can't see, but there's a beautiful view of Brooklyn outside with all the lights on. Is there anything else you'd want to add? Um, pick up a pen and draw. Thanks for listening to Internet Misfits. I hope you found the conversation inspiring, helpful, energizing, and insightful. You can find me on the web to continue the conversation on my personal site, joe.universe, which is joe.univer.se. See you out there. Bye-bye.